morning. Um, today we're going to be in John chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, please stand with me um, as we read God's word today. John writes in John chapter 2, 12 through 17. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you guys can see it. Let's pray. Father, um, Thank you for your son, Jesus, uh, the example that we get in his actions and his words, but more than that, Lord, the salvation that we get from his actions and his words. And thank you for reconciling us to yourself through your son's death and through his resurrection. I pray today that you would fill us with your spirit because you are present among us as we gathered in your name and that today we would worship you. Uh, in the way that's pleasing in your sight, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, and that we would worship you through Christ. Father, we long to worship you. We long for you to receive glory. So imprint your word upon our hearts, press upon your nature uh, into us, and let us be made more like you in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to kind of uh, intro this section of Scripture, Chapters 2, 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 4, is kind of one section in John, and it's held together by Cana. So Cana starts at the beginning, and then Cana is at the end of the section um, as well. And it's also held together by uh, a theme. Um, D.A. Carson summarizes the theme as this, the old has gone and the new has come. The old has gone and the new has come. And in each kind of one of these sections in this, this overall section of John, you see a kind of replacement of the new covenant coming in and replacing the old covenant. So for some examples, last week, right, Joe said, Jesus is cutting a new covenant. And he demonstrates this in his miracle of changing the water into wine, right? This week, we're starting a section that is a cleansing of the temple and then next week's kind of 18 through 22 is a replacing of the temple where the Lord Jesus himself replaces the temple with himself, his own body. And then um, in John 3, we get the new birth, the new means by which people become God's covenant people the, from being born again with John, or sorry, with uh, Nicodemus and the conversation between him and Jesus. And then in John 4, we see the water of Jacob's well being compared and contrasted to the living water that Jesus offers, a.k.a. 
this, you will always remain thirsty and you'll continue to get thirsty and you'll have to come back to it. The water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And then finally, in that same kind of section uh, with the Samaritan woman, Jesus highlights the worship practices of those who belong to Jerusalem and then the Samaritans and Gerizim, and he contrasts it with the worship of the New Testament, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And so all of this is the old has gone and the new has come. And in today's text, uh, we're starting to see the temple being cleansed and replaced. So 12 through 17, we see it cleansed, and 18 through 22, we'll see it replaced. Um, temple, the reason I'm focusing in on temples is because John is focusing in on temple. Temple and the word house, which is temple in this text as well, uh, is used five times in this section that we have today, and then it's used another three times in verses 18 through 22. So it's used a grand total of eight times, and so John is zeroing in on temple, and then particularly, he's zeroing in on Jesus' zeal for his people's worship in his Father's house. That's the main kind of controlling thing, is Jesus' zeal for the right worship of God in the house of God. Um, and this is not, a, obviously, a theme that's new with Jesus. Uh, this is something that goes all the way back from the Old Testament beginning, weaves all the way throughout the Old Testament, and then goes right into the New Testament all the way to the end. This idea of zeal for right worship of God. So I'm going to give some examples uh, from the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, um, after Adam uh, eats the fruit and sins against God, uh, God is described as coming to his garden, his, his mountain garden temple, Eden. And he's coming there to essentially find out who has sinned against me, why he sinned. And then he's coming to lay out the curses of the covenant that he made with his people because they disobeyed him. He curses the serpent, he curses Eve, and he curses man. And then ultimately, he cleanses his temple by exiling Adam and Eve out of it. And then he puts a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the entrance of the temple so that they could not come back again. And that image of a cherubim guarding the entrance is carried forth uh, forward all throughout the Old Testament when Moses commands them to, uh, according to the Lord's words, to make the tabernacle the holy of holy curtains that separates the most holy place from just the rest of the temple. A cherubim is stitched into the actual curtain to constantly remind them, you cannot come to where God himself dwells. You're exiled because of your sin. We see this theme again in Exodus 32, after the people have been freed from Egypt, um, and they're in the wilderness, and they camp out at Mount Sinai, which is called the Lord's Mountain. And as Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, Aaron uh, is kind of pressured by the people, and they're like, make us a god to worship, and he's like, okay, give me your gold. And they start handing him jewelry and stuff. He throws it into a fire, and then out comes this calf. Uh, he had no intentionality of making it. But just out comes this calf, and they start worshiping this golden calf as Yahweh, who brought them out of Egypt. And so God commands Moses to go back down. The people have sinned, and God actually wants to destroy them and start over with Moses. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites, and then God's like, okay, we'll continue with the Israelites. But as Moses gets down, he asks the question, who is on the Lord's side? And he beckons people who are on the Lord's side to come over to him. And everyone else who did not come over was slain. They were killed. 
right? A cleansing of his temple, a cleansing of his worship. Uh, we see it again um, in Leviticus 10, two of Aaron's sons offer unauthorized fire uh, on censers in the tabernacle. And then verse 2 of Leviticus 10 says this, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. We see it again with King Uzziah, who's a good king. He's described as one who did right, did good in the sight of God. Uzziah then has a lapse of judgment, comes into the temple, and does something that only the holy priest—sorry, the, only the high priest—is supposed to do. And he, he lights this censer, does something that the king's not supposed to do, and leprosy then breaks out on his forehead, and he remains a leper for the rest of his days. He has to live outside of the camp, even though he's the king of uh, Israel at the time. And it broke out on his forehead because the high priest covering, the head covering, literally has inscribed at the forehead, holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord. Holiness has always been God's uh, standard for our worship. Uh, we see it in the New Testament. I'm just going to give one example, and then we'll have an example today as well. But we see it in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sell their lands, they take the proceeds, and they lay some of the proceeds at the apostles' feet, but then they tell the apostles they laid all of the proceeds. So they lied to the Holy Spirit and they lied to the apostles. It wasn't the actual giving or not giving everything. It was the fact that they lied about what they gave. Um, and then they're struck down dead, both of them, one at a time, at the apostles' feet and carried out uh, by presumably church members. Holiness is always and will always be God's standard. So the principle that we see from this theme and that we're going to see from our text is this. God will only be worshipped on his own terms. God will only be worshipped on his own terms, not on our terms. There's a kind of fancy-smancy theology term for this. Um, we, uh, they call it the regulative principle. The regulative principle. This is what the Reformers said in the 1500s. This is the Belgic Confession uh, about the regulative principle. It says, For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in the scriptures. It is unlawful for anyone, even an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in scriptures. Namely, God has laid out how he wants his people to worship him, both corporately together, but also individually as we go back to our houses, we go back to our jobs, we go back to these different things, and that we're not to alter or to worship him in another way that's not commanded of, of us in scripture. Dever says the regular principle this way. Everything we do in worship, particularly in a corporate worship gathering, must be clearly warranted by Scripture. Clear warrant can either take form of an explicit biblical command, but it also can be warranted by um, necessary implication of a text, a biblical text. Um, the regulative principle is outlined by the prophet Samuel when he comes to Saul and rejects him as king. He says this, uh, well, the story, right? Saul is waiting on Samuel to come because uh, Samuel's going to make this sacrifice after this big battle. Um, and the days had passed that he's supposed to be waiting for him, and he's like, okay, he's not coming. And he steps in and does what Samuel was supposed to do. And then Samuel comes and rebukes him, and this is what he says. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have uh, rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And so that word presumption is important. Saul in this moment presumed that the Lord would be okay with being worshipped in the way that he had thought in his heart would be okay. The Lord was not okay because he gave explicit instructions, right? And presumption then led Saul in that moment into idolatry. And presumption with the church of Christ as well, when we presume we know how the Lord wants to be worshipped and we depart from how he says he wants to be worshipped, more times than not it leads us straight into idolatry or false worship. We either twist God into our own image or we worship a completely different God. So in today's text, that's that's literally what today's text is about. Jesus' cleansing of the temple. The word of God made flesh comes to his temple and he cleanses it from unauthorized worship. And in doing so, he teaches his church some very valuable and important lessons regarding our own corporate, our own coming together and worshiping of God, but also individually. And again, we're not to make the mistake that Holiness is still God's standard. Holiness is still God's standard. His word is still the authority by which we must worship him. So we're going to survey the Lord's cleansing zeal for his father's house. And we're also going to see that that same zeal that led him to cleanse the temple is the same zeal that leads him to go and die on the cross. And that John's going to tie those two things together in our text. So our first point of three is this. uh, The Passover sets the stage for Jesus' cleansing of the temple. So we get some seemingly throwaway verses. There's never a throwaway verse in the Bible. But it just seems like it's more descriptive, and there's nothing really um, too deep in, in these verses. But in it, it actually sets the entire backdrop by which we're supposed to read the rest of the text. So John writes in verses 12 through 13 this, After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. End quote. So after the miracle of changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana, uh, Jesus, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, traveled to Capernaum. This seems to be, um, if we do a little overlaying with other Gospels, Mark 1.29 indicates that Capernaum is where Simon Peter's mother-in-law lived. And so in Mark 1, Jesus heals the mother-in-law from a fever, and then she kind of serves the disciples and Jesus, and it's like a kind of way station set up, and then all these sick people just come, and Jesus spends the entire time just like healing them and ministering to their needs. And then in our text, right, a few days after being in Capernaum, it doesn't even tell us what's going on there, he travels up to Jerusalem. Now one other thing from verse 12 uh, that I think is here. The mention of mother, brothers, and disciples could merely be descriptive, but it also might be an allusion to Psalm 69, 8. And Psalm 69, 9, at the end of our text, is directly quoted. And so that's why I think it's an allusion here. But Psalm 69, 8 says this, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Um, So if John is alluding to Psalm 69 here, it would play as Psalm 69 is interwoven 
from 12 all the way down to 17, and it's quoted. So it begins with Psalm 69, ends with Psalm 69. The whole text is controlled by Psalm 69. So verse 13, Jesus tells us, or John tells us, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And this is the reason Jesus goes to Jerusalem and ultimately the temple. Um, he's obeying Deuteronomy 16.16, which was a command where God said a couple times a year, a male, Jewish male, should travel to Jerusalem. And it's for three feasts, essentially. One of the feasts is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread essentially is this week-long feast that starts or is kicked off by the Passover. And then right after the Passover night, there's this seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Jews oftentimes just called the entire thing together the Passover. And so that's what's going on. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, obeying God's word, to celebrate the Passover there. And uh, some backdrop to the Passover, because I think this is important. It gives, it's not um, an end-all, be-all for our text today, but it's important to know kind of the historical background. What, what was Jesus doing for, to celebrate the Passover? Because it, it gives you a sense of what's behind our text here. So uh, William Hendrickson gives a good summary of what would take place during the evening of the Passover feast that Jesus is now in Jerusalem. Uh, first, it would start off with a prayer of thanksgiving by whoever house you're in, the head of the house. So likely the father of the house. Um, and then there's this cup of wine that's poured out, and that's the first cup of wine. It then continues with the eating of bitter herbs. And that was meant to remind them of Egyptian slavery. Right? So they're thinking about Egypt and the bitterness that uh, slavery to Egypt was. And then the children of whoever house it is is supposed to make an inquiry. Why? Why is this day distinguished above other days? And then the father then instructs the children and everyone else who's there. He instructs by saying, because of the story of the Exodus, and he literally just narrates the events of the Exodus, the plagues and how God delivered them. Passover lamb and the Red Sea. He narrates the entire um, Exodus account. And then it continues with singing, singing some of the Psalms, what's called the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. But in this part, they just sing the first two. They sing Psalm 113 and 114. They wash their hands. Then it continues to the carving and eating of the lamb and the unleavened bread. It continues with them eating this feast. And they can eat whatever or however much they want, but the lamb has to be completely eaten. Again, reflecting on the Exodus Passover lamb um, plague. And then it concludes with the singing of the last part of the Hallel, which is Psalms 115 through 118. And what follows that is then the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. So Jesus is doing that this night before he comes to the temple and cleanses it. And the reason John's putting this uh, in our minds is because he wants the Passover feast to serve as a backdrop by which we view what Jesus's actions are doing here, but also later on in the cross of Christ himself, like where he dies on the cross. John has four Passover feasts in his gospel. There's one here. There's one in chapter six, verse four, which is where he gives his, I am the bread of life speech, where he's essentially saying, I am the actual bread that you eat and will never go hungry again from. There's another one in chapter 1155. And at this point, he's not even walking publicly amongst the Jews because it's well known that they want to kill him. And then there's another one 
in chapter 12, verse 1, it starts off by saying, it's six days before the Passover, and the rest of the Gospel of John is fit between 12 and 21. It's all within that kind of last week leading up to the Passover, and Jesus is crucified on the Passover. So all this is serving as a backdrop to understand Jesus' ministry. But on top of that, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he's going into the temple. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies about the Lord coming to his temple. I'll read one, Malachi 3, uh, verses, we'll go through 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. That's from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Malachi is grabbing Isaiah 40, dropping it here. John the Baptist in John 1 grabs Isaiah 40, says, I am that voice. So this is John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So again, that uh, Malachi is doing a couple things here. He's grabbing from Isaiah. He's also grabbing from Exodus. Uh, this is Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel, or messenger is what angel can mean. Behold, I send an, a messenger or angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So Malachi is grabbing those scriptures and he's putting it all in this context. And then in our text, in John 1, John the Baptist claims to be the fulfillment of the messenger who's come to prepare the way. And then we get Jesus doing what? Coming to his temple fulfilling that second part. And what is he coming to his temple for? To refine, to renew the worship of God. He's renewing the Levites. He's renewing the sacrifices. He's renewing how temple worship is going to happen. So the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So Jews from all around the world, even some Gentile converts, they're all traveling to the temple to celebrate the Passover now. And now little did they know the Lord of hosts himself has come into his temple. And that's where our text starts. So let's look at our second point. Jesus cleanses the temple in deed and in word. So he's got actions. He also has words that he says. John writes in verses 14 through 16, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. So let's just start with the speculation part that I don't think is important to this text. People ask the question, is this the same temple cleansing as the one recorded in Matthew 21? Because in Matthew... It's toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And John, it seems to be at the beginning. So there's kind of two responses to that. Um, first, uh, it could be the same cleansing. We don't know. It could be. Because when they write the Gospels, they're not necessarily particularly 
um, trying to write Jesus' life in chronological order. They're trying to take down his teaching and his actions and give it to the church. Um, so it could be, uh, but it also might not be. Uh, D.A. Carson has a pretty good summary of uh, what I think is in the text. He says, in short, it's not possible to resolve with certainty whether only one cleansing of the temple took place or two, but the arguments for one are weak and subjective. That's what he says. While the most natural reading of the text, Matthew 21, John uh, 2, favors two separate cleansings. So we don't know, but it seems like, when you read Matthew 21 in context, when you read this section in context, it seems like it's actually temporal, like it is it is uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is the end of Jesus' ministry. But this is an important truth to remember. When things are not certain in Scripture, it's because they do not have to be certain in order for us to understand how to use them and apply them to our lives. So this isn't certain because John doesn't care if it's certain for us. He's trying to get at another point. So let's look at exactly what is Jesus doing in the temple here? What's the purpose here? Matthew 21's cleansing account, Jesus seems to accuse uh, these people of making his house into a den of robbers. So there seems to be some kind of like trickery and economical stealing going on in the temple in Matthew 21. But in John's account, he doesn't make any reference to sneaky business going on within the temple. He doesn't seem to have that mindset. Verse 16 is the closest we can get to Jesus explaining why he's cleansing it. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So whatever his problem is with what's going on in the temple, it seems to be involved with that last statement, house of trade. And there's several things in this text that show us that trade is going on. First, there's the selling of the oxen, the sheep, and the pigeons to be used for sacrifices. But this is actually, I would call it almost hospitable. Because what are they doing? All these Jews during this Passover feast, are they're coming from all over Rome. And it's kind of hard to bring an oxen with you if you're traveling a long distance, or a lamb, or whatever, an animal with you traveling a long distance. So they're providing a service that allows these guys who are from out of town to purchase the animals that they're then going to sacrifice for the right worship of God. So it seems like it's, it's meant to make it more um, helpful or suitable for those who are traveling. Uh, there's a second thing of trade. There are money changers there, and they're exchanging foreign currency for a currency at the time that was only accepted in the temple. It was Tyrian coinage. So basically, you would come, you'd have different kinds of money, but in order to give money in the temple, it had to be a certain kind of coin. So these guys would then exchange your money for those kinds of coins so that, again, you could worship. Now, they're making a percentage, and so the way I say it is that this is a hospitality with a pinch of capitalism is what seems to be going on in the temple right now. It's hospitality with a pinch of capitalism. But I think Jesus' problem is found in a preposition in this text. Look at the phrase, in the temple. It's the preposition in. These things were not going on outside of the temple so that then people could go in the temple to worship. These things were going on in the temple where people were supposed to worship. Uh, D.A. Carson summarizes it this way. At one time, the animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. 
But at this point, they were in the temple courts. So it used to be outside of Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, where you would buy your animals, bring them into Jerusalem, bring them to the temple to sacrifice. But at this point, they're in the actual temple court. And it then says, Jesus' problem is not with the business ethics, per se, but with the fact that they should not be in the temple at all. They're violating God's law. The temple was a place to worship God, not a place of trade. So let's look at some of Jesus' actions, some of the verbs that describe his actions, and look at his words so we can kind of see the tone of the text. So look at his actions. I'm going to list them off. Um, Making a whip of cords. I've been looking forward to my whole life being able to preach this text. So I could, you know, sit up here and just slowly while preaching it, make a whip, and then like, no, just kidding. But like he's making, he's sitting there making a whip of cords while he's observing what's going on in the temple. He's not like, he didn't bring his whip with him, he's making it. Um, it's a very deliberate action. And then this next verb, drove them all out, right? And he's doing that with the whip. And then he poured out all the coins. He's going to the coins, he's literally just pouring them out on the floor. And then the, the next verb, he's overturned, like it says, overturned their tables. So he's literally going, not only pouring out the coins, he's flipping tables in the temple. This would have been a very um, hard action or sequence to imagine the gentle and lowly Jesus doing. But he's doing this, right? And he's doing it deliberately. And it's zeal that's um, guiding him. And then look at his words. His words are also very strong. Take these things away is uh, imperative in the Greek. It means you must take these things away. He's giving a command. And then the same with the make. You must not make my father's house a house of trade. Right? And so there's his verbs, his actions, and there's his words. But there's also, again, more Old Testament passages that he's fulfilling here. Zechariah 14, 21 Kind of the second half of 21 says this, there will no longer be a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, not traitor, in the house of the Lord on that day. In kind of the context of Zechariah, Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 are just chock full of the messianic promises that Jesus himself fulfills. Particularly, I'll give you one that's super poignant, and the reason I'm giving it to you is because John himself gives it to you later. Um, Zechariah 12.10, when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, right, that, that quote, that's quoted in John 19.37, when the Roman soldiers take this, the spear and they stab it into the side of Jesus, it says this was to fulfill scripture, and it, it lists off something from Psalm 22, none of his bones would be broken, and it lists off this Zechariah 12, they will look on him whom they pierced, um, so Zechariah is chock full of, of passages that are fulfilled by Jesus, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making sure that there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. And so he is, um, in essence, if you think about, if you want to summarize his actions and his words, he is stopping the sacrificial system from happening that day. He's flipping over the money changers, he's getting rid of all the animals, and he's driving out all the people that sell these things to people. He's quite literally stopping the sacrificial system, which had been corrupted at this point in our passage. And why is he doing it? 
Because later on, he's going to fulfill it, and he's going to change it. He's going to replace it with his own death. Um, another way of saying this is um, talking about future hope. In our text, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. It says he went up to Jerusalem to the temple to cleanse it. But there's also going to be a day in the future, because of his cleansing, tied to his death and his resurrection, where Jerusalem comes down from God to be delivered to Jesus as his bride. Revelation 21, also written by John, verse 2 says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So Jesus is cleansing the old temple and replacing it. And he's cleansing the old sacrificial system and he's going to replace it. Um, just in case, uh, I don't want you to think I'm just making up this replacement theology. Look at verses 19 and 21, which is next week's text, so I don't want to take too much of it. But 19, they ask him, you know, what sign are you doing these things? And he says something along the lines of, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it. And then they're freaking out, are you going to rebuild it? This thing took 46 years to build. And then he says in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body, and then it shines a light on the resurrection. Uh, the new sacrificial system is being replaced. That's a, a John theme. Look at, uh, you don't have to flip to this, but this is John 19, 29 through 30. This is as Christ is on the cross, and he, and he basically says, I thirst, and they hand him a jar. It says, uh, starting in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The hyssop is the thing that I want to zone in on. In the Passover feast, the original Passover feast, they used hyssop to basically dip it in the blood of the lamb that they slain and then to paint it over their door so that God would pass over. And now the hyssop is being used to take sour wine and to Give it to Jesus, who is the Passover lamb on the cross. And it's at that point he says, it is finished. And he bows his head and gave, gives up his spirit. Um, only this new temple, Jesus, and only this new sacrifice, his death on the cross, has the power to cleanse his people and to make them fit for right worship. So let's look at our third and final point. Jesus will die as the temple and for the temple. John states in verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So a quick note of structure that I think will be helpful here. Um, verses 12 through 22 fit really nice together. And they're kind of, each one has a section that ends, and has a section that ends, and the sections that end are related to each other. So verses 12 through 16, we just walked through those, describes Jesus' deeds and his words in the cleansing of the temple. But then verse 17 here, it ends with his disciples remembering scripture. And then it tells us the scripture they remembered, Psalm 69, verse 9. Well then, verses 18 through 21, Jesus continues to have this temple cleansing conversation with the Jews. And you know they're asking, what, what authority do you do these things on? And then verse 22 ends with a very similar way. 
the disciples remembered Jesus' words, and it says, uh, in the words they remember, in three days I will rise, uh, raise it up. So they remember Jesus' words, and they believe in the words of Christ and in the scriptures. So each section ends with the disciples remembering Jesus' words or the, the Old Testament and um, changing their thinking and believing in the scriptures. So Jesus here has taught his disciples how to read the Old Testament, and here in our passage in particular, how to read Psalm 69. And so that's one of the things that we'll do. And so another kind of point here, right? Right worship means remembering God's words, believing God's words, obeying God's words. So zeal for your house will consume me is Psalm 69, 9. Psalm 69 reads slightly different. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of them who reproach you have fallen on me. And so Psalm 69 is one of the most used psalms in the New Testament, particularly about Jesus. It's used a lot by John himself. It's used three times in the book of John, and it's used another three or four times in the book of Revelation. But it's also used by Paul, uh, Romans 15, and it's used in other places. So it's one of the most used psalms, uh, but John uses it three times, and in each times he touches on Jesus' death. And so he wants us to tie this passage that we're reading to his death. And the next week, he wants to tie it to the resurrection. Um, so in our text, zeal for your house has consumed me. But note what John does here. He switches has with a future tense verb, will. Zeal for your house will consume me. Because he's not wanting the disciples to just simply look at the cleansing of the temple and be like, oh, he's really zealous for God. But he's actually wanting them to think about his future death on the cross. Just like in verse 22, where they heard him say these things about the temple, but then after his resurrection, they remembered, oh, Jesus said these words. We believe these things. And so both of these texts, right, it's it's John's rendition of 1 Corinthians 15.3, that Christ dies for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. This is John's way of doing that. And so zeal for your house will consume me. And consume here is serving kind of double duty, showing us Jesus' passion for the temple worship of God, but it's also alluding to the time when he will literally be consumed. He will be ended like fire burning a bush. In the future, Jesus' zeal for his people will lead him to the cross as he cuts a new covenant. So let's look at how else John uses Psalm 69. In John 15, 25, he gives kind of that familiar speech of, uh, he's talking to his disciples, and um, it's right before his death, it's a week before Passover, and he basically tells them, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They killed me. They're going to kill you, right? And he quotes Psalm 69, verse 4 in that passage. And then he uses it again, Psalm 69, on the cross, which we already read this, but I'm going to read it again. In John 19, 29, it tells us, right, that um, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put out a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said it was finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that just quick verse, sour wine is used three times because John wants us to focus in on sour wine. And listen to this. This is what came right before it. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then John tells us why he said it, to fulfill the scripture. And what does he say? I thirst. And then what do they do? They give him the sour wine. So Jesus is knowingly on the cross saying, I thirst, because he probably is really thirsty. But on top of that, in his mind, he knows what God has said about the Messiah. And he knows he has come to fulfill God's promises to God's people. And so he says, I thirst to fulfill Psalm 69, verse 21, which says this. Um, Let me read it. Psalm 69. Probably should have it up, huh? And they gave uh, sour wine to me to drink. They gave me sour wine to drink. And so Jesus has Psalm 69 verse 21 in mind when he says, I'm thirsty. And then even on the cross, he's fulfilling this psalm. It kind of made me think of last, um, kind of think made me think of a song that we sung last week, one of the bridges, faithful to the end, God, you are always good. Even in the midst of dying, Jesus is faithfully fulfilling God's word. And then even beyond that, right the very next thing when the guy stabs Jesus with the spear, um, he's still fulfilling God's word even after he's dead. So there's a couple of applications from Psalm 69 and uh, Psalm 69.9 in particular uh, to us. Uh, First, Psalm 69's use in uh, John 15 It paints that there's two parties involved. You can summarize the world up as two different kinds of people. There are those who hate and reject Christ, and then there are those who receive Christ, believe in Christ, are growing in their love and cherishing of Christ. They receive, they believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, as John says in John 20, verse 31, the purpose statement. There are those who are going to cry out to crucify Christ and participate in crucifying Christ. And then there are those who are going to remember his words and believe in the scriptures that he is who he says he is. And so John's use of Psalm 69 is both a warning and it's an invitation. It's a warning in the sense that it's warning those who reject Christ that they will be consumed by God's wrath for rejecting Christ and for sinning against God, for for worshiping, whether it be another God themselves, or worshiping God in an unrighteous way, not according to his word. It's a warning to them. But it's also an invitation, because he's recording for us the scriptures that Jesus is fulfilling. He's saying, look, God has said he's going to do this, and God is doing this through Christ. And he's putting that in front of us, and he's beckoning us like the disciples to remember that it was written, and to believe the words of Christ and the words of the Old Testament about Christ. Um, Lee Strobel has a a pretty good quote about prophecy fulfillment. And I bring it up because, again, prophecy fulfillment is at the heart of our text, but it's also, if you read Acts, it's one of the most repeated features of the church's worship of God is they're reminding themselves that God said these things and Jesus did these things, and they're worshiping him because of it. But they're also trying to go out to Gentiles and Jews alike, and they're trying to prove 
to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And one of the ways that they do is they would say, it was written here, and look, Jesus did that here. That was one of the ways that they would convince. It's the very first sermon um, after Pentecost. It uses Joel 2, and it uses one of the Psalms of David to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's doing what he said he used to do. So Lee Strobel has a good quote here. He says, I imagine the entire world being covered with white tile that's about one and a half inches per square. Every piece of dry land on the planet and having the bottom of just one tile painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander a lifetime around uh, all seven continents as long as they want. Well, a lifetime, I guess. He would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up a single piece of tile what are the odds it would be the one whose reverse side is painted red? And then he goes on to say the odds would be about the same as just eight of the Old Testament messianic prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. Just eight. Now, Jesus fulfilled all of them. And so this inspires us and this invites us in to believe that God is faithful and that God's word is trustworthy and that Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ, the Son of God. Our second kind of application from Psalm 69 is this, that the church is created to worship God. The church is created to worship God in spirit truth. We'll get that more in John 4. Uh, but Jesus' zeal created the church. His zeal is what led him to the cross and his zeal is what brings kind of two things together. It brings the, the, the glory of God, which is primary in all things, but it also brings the people of God. It brings those two things together in the worship of God. The way that we rightly worship God is because the Spirit has been given us, and we know the truth, and we're able to worship Him because of Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected. And so it's very applicable to us in that sense. So I wanted to just list off some things going back to kind of the regulative principle that we're to worship according to God's word. I was thinking about the gathering, right? When we gather on Sundays, what does God say to us about that? We gather on Sundays as one body because Hebrews 10 commands it. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, do not neglect coming together, right? Do not neglect gathering. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen tells us, when they came together as a church. Something in the actual coming together makes us a church, right? Uh, why do we publicly read scripture? 1 Timothy 4.13 commands Timothy to, to devote himself in the Ephesus church, the church of Ephesians, to publicly read scripture. Why do we preach the word in and out of season? Acts 6.2, 2 Timothy 4.2, both of these things command God's church when they gather, to gather around hearing God's words proclaimed to them. Uh, why do we sing God's word and truth back to them? The entire book of Psalms gives us this, this model and this image of God's people, but on top of that, we're commanded in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. It's part of discipling. It's actually, in Colossians, it says, let the word of God dwell richly in you. That let the word dwell richly is then modified by a couple participles. One of the participles is singing. So the way that we let God's word dwell richly in us is when we gather together, we sing God's word to him. Um, why do we give uh, generously and without compulsion? Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 17. Why do we pray 
Acts 2.42 describes the church as those who devote themselves to prayer. Matthew 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Um, why do we observe baptism, the Lord's Supper? Romans 6.3 talks about baptism. 1 Corinthians 11.18 says, When you come together as a church, it's not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate because they were doing it wrongly. But basically, when we're coming together as a church, one of the things that we do together is we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's outlined in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and forward. And so Jesus is still zealous for how we worship his Father in his house, in his temple. And so to kind of conclude, I wanted to put up an image or put an image in our heads of another time in Scripture, another time in a book John wrote where Jesus comes to his temple. Um, and this is Revelation. In Revelations, really, 1 through 3, chapter 1, John sees this vision of Jesus, and he's just glorified. It's almost like the transfiguration language, and he's just glorious. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters written to seven individual local bodies of the church. And in each of these letters, it's Jesus coming to his temple, the church, and he's telling them, here are some things that you were doing well. And he's encouraging and he's exhorting them to continue doing those things. And then he's coming to them and saying, but here I have these things against you. And all of it's being regulated into his word. Jesus is quite literally coming to his temple again and again. Um, Matthew 18, 20 says this in the context of the church. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. When we gather, Jesus' promise is that he actually is among us right now as we gather in his name. He's among us. Why is he among us? Well, he's ministering to us. He's exhorting us. He's encouraging us. And he's saying, but I have these things. He's talking to us. He's convicting us of the things that we have done wrong. Basically, he's regulating our worship. He's regulating how we worship him. He's regulating how we worship the Father. So listen to this. Uh, this is Revelation 3 um, to the church of Sardis. And he starts, uh, he starts off with a, a zinger. I know your works. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Those are probably words that you never want to hear Jesus say. Never want to hear him say to you or to, to the church. But first of all, I just focus in on the first part. I know your works. Why does he know it works? Because he's among us as we gather. He knows our workings and what we're doing. Now, the reason I brought that letter up is not because I'm telling you, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's not why I brought it up. I brought it up because Psalm 69 makes a return yet again in this letter to Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Then he calls them to repent, and he promises them from his word. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And this is coming from Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of, your, of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, we might be thinking, oh, well, then I gotta, I gotta work. I gotta do something. I gotta get better at something in order not to be blotted out. But the whole theme of Revelation is we conquer through the Lamb who is slain. 
He conquered by being slain, and we conquer by submitting to the Lamb who was slain. So I had some just questions, just maybe questions to ask our hearts as we each Sunday gather together. Um, first of all, what is he saying to us? Right? What is he saying to Remedy? What is he saying to me individually when I go out in my uh, home or my workplace or whatever it is? Um, that's the first question. But more so, when we are gathering for the worship of God and Jesus, is that what we're here for? Is it to worship God? To worship Jesus? Are we regulating our worship together according to his words? Are we regulating our worship of him in our homes and in our workplace according to his words? Or are we kind of more occasionally like Saul, presuming to know how the Lord wants to be worshipped um, in, in our homes and in our church? Uh, when we hear a sermon, are we here to uh, hear a particular man preach? Or are we here to hear God's words proclaimed regardless of the voice, right? As long as it's true to God's words, that's why we're here, is to hear God's words. Are we coming to love one another and to sacrificially love the Lord? Or are we coming because we need something? We want something. We want something to be fulfilled and given to us. We exchange the coins of others' service and take a percentage off the top for ourselves. Do we sing songs because it's our style? Or do we not sing songs because it's not our style? Or are we just lifting up our voices together because we know Jesus longs to be sung to? He longs to hear the voice of his church worship his name and worship him in truth. Are we here to worship God or is there an ulterior reason in our hearts, right? And Jesus here is calling us to analyze our hearts and he's encouraging us to continue worshiping him according to his word and to repent when we find things that um, are there that are not according to his word. Jesus is still zealous for his father's worship, so zealous it led him to be consumed upon the awful tree. And it is at the cross that we find our salvation and our cleansing. And it's also in his resurrection where we find our new spirit-filled life to worship God how he desires to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, um, oftentimes we do things that are not in accordance to your word. And um, oftentimes we sin directly against you. We do things that we know are in your word. Uh, but we just directly disobey. And other times we might do it unintentionally, and other times it's we left something undone that should have been done. Um, Lord, we know, Jesus, that your blood is cleansing and that your blood brings forgiveness of sins. And so we turn to you with the, the things in our own lives uh, that hold us back from worshiping you how you desire. We confess those things to you, and we ask that you would cleanse us from those things and that you would put on Christ, uh, put Christ on upon us, cause us to walk in ways to worship your name. And Father, I pray that you would make us a zealous people like Jesus, that we would be zealous for your worship and we would zealously protect your worship and regulate it according to your words. Lord, today we gather and we know you're among us. Uh, receive our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.